You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. Time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny day. It is July 22nd when we are broadcasting this. And boy, it's gorgeous, Don. It is. It's interesting. It's interesting to be seeing complaints about temperatures on my usual range of friends on social media. And then looking at our weather forecast. Now we're recording this on the 21st, Wednesday. It'll be broadcasting on July 22nd, as you noted. And today, it is going to be 91 degrees, which is just a little below average for this time of year. Average right now would typically be about 93, close enough. Tonight's temperature will be 55. The day of the broadcast will also be 91, and the night will also be 55. And Friday, the Weather Service does go from their lovely blue icon with a pretty sun to their hot yellow icon with an orange sun, which means it's above 95 degrees. In Davis, it is going to be 96 degrees on Friday. In Dixon, it's going to be um, 95 degrees on Friday. And in Woodland, where one of my friends lives, who posted about how miserable it was going to be, it's going to be 100 degrees. So there you go. You have a five from, from 95 to 100 in eight miles? Roughly speaking, yes. Now, you got to bear in mind exactly where the weather stations are in each of those communities. But uh, Woodland is going to be through the next several days, five to six degrees hotter than Davis, which is only you know, roughly 10 miles away. Literally from the border of the city to the border of the city is less than six miles at one point. They are growing towards each other. But um, this is the difference that that coastal breeze is going to make. Uh, those of us who are just that much closer to the Delta, to the coast, are gonna be a few degrees cooler. And so I see that, you know, you woodland folks, I'm so sorry, Friday's going to be 100, Saturday's going to be 99, Sunday's going to be 96. You've got those yellow, orange National Weather Service icons all week. We only have one, and that's Friday when we're going to be 96 degrees. Are we gloating? Heavens no. Uh, Friday, night will be, Friday night will be 57 degrees, Saturday 94. It's very close to average. Saturday night, mostly clear, 56, Sunday 91. The notable thing about the weather is um, the influence of monsoon air. And you know, it's funny when you say this, people look at you, you know, curiously because we don't have- mon- I thought monsoons were over in Asia. Do we uh, have monsoons? They have monsoon air pushing off of the Gulf of Mexico uh, all over the Southwest every summer. It's a standard part of their climate down there. It is often- What is monsoon air, Don? It's warm, moist air coming in off the Gulf and then raining in some places. But the main thing is, it's more humid. I have a beautiful picture from two nights ago as the leading edge of this monsoon remnant of a storm was coming into our area. It made some beautiful sunset pictures for a lot of people. And the next day was, by our terms, 
a little sticky. You know, when it was hot, it was actually 24% humidity. Ooh, that's high. I, I have a friend who lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I sent her a note saying, oh, we're all complaining here because it's muggy. It's 24% humidity. And she, she um, uh, burst out laughing, I could tell by her reply. In Ann Arbor, Michigan, it was 80-something percent humidity in the evening, and uh, they're having showers and all that kind of stuff. No showers here. When I say monsoon air, it's just the air. It's just the somewhat more humid air than we're accustomed to. The downside of this is as that air pushes up into the Sierra Foothill or into the coast range, the rapid elevation change can lead to thunderstorms and lightning. And in this instance, yeah. it would be dry lightning, not particularly associated with a lot in the way of rainfall. So that's a hazard. Uh, that's what happened last year quite spectacularly along the coast range that ultimately led to one of the biggest fires in California history was dozens of hundreds, if I recall, of lightning strikes. This is not on that magnitude, but it's the same climate things being set up here where air is pushing up from the southwest. It's warmer. It's, it's not hot, but it's uh, moist. And by our standards, pretty muggy. That's not going to be so bad for the next few days, but there is this slight risk that they put into the Long-term forecast of thunder showers and lightning strikes, unfortunately, kind of in a ring around the valley. And that does happen this time of year. There have been times when I've been following the weather in Tucson, because I have a friend there, and places in the south. One, one summer, one day, in, one week in July, they had six inches of rain in Tucson a couple of years ago. That does never happen here. It does happen down there when these kinds of storms have enough moisture in them to drop a bunch of rain very rapidly. And people who live in the desert areas are quite aware of that, and you don't camp in the washes. Um, tem temperatures. So in, go ahead. In Davis, um, in California, now I used to fight forest fires. There are two kinds of what we call fire weather. One is that hot, dry north yeah. wind. Tindle, and tindle. That's because everything gets so dry, any little spark will set it off. And the second kind is the dry lightning. And that's where it's a nice, beautiful day in the valley. You look up towards the, the foothills and they've got this big, fluffy clouds with no rain. And, yeah. and you go, okay, we're going to get called out tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it's happening more often than it used to. Well, because of the magnitude of what happened last year, they're quite on alert about these kinds of things when they get into the weather forecast. So just be aware that one of those, one of the side effects of all those lovely clouds we're seeing is there might be lightning hitting places where we don't want it to hit. Uh, that's going on for a few days, but nothing here in the 100 degree range over the long-term uh, forecasting. So we've had an interesting summer so far. We're about halfway through calendar-wise. Um, a few extremely hot events that people remember. You know, we hit 115 degrees at the Vacaville weather station, which is only eight miles from where I live. That was a few days ago, you know, last, that last heat wave. We've had a couple of those heat waves this year. And then long intervals of mild placid weather. And most people who have tomato vines and such in their garden that are growing well are reporting a lot of fruit set right now. The flowers are setting fruit because the days have typically been around 90. Some of them have been below 90. So those magical uh, pollination thresholds, which I always want to emphasize, are not an absolute thing. It's not 90 degrees, they shut off 89 degrees, everything is fine. Varieties differ. It's the way the weather happens and so on that's a factor. But so far, most people whose vines look healthy are getting good fruit set now for the tomatoes we'll be harvesting in mid-September and into October. So that's good news for gardeners. So Don, what's wrong with me? 
I, I planted that tomato that you, you showed me too, which is uh, Chef's Choice Pink. Mm -hmm. It grew, it grew, it grew, it grew so big that I couldn't even put the squirrel inhibitor thing yeah. that I was designing. Barrier, barrier, yes. Barrier, yeah. And, and it set one fruit. Well, I the get entire this. season. So I went fun. out yesterday, looked at every single flower. There's nothing but one fruit. It's almost ripe. Good. But it's Enjoy just. that. So far, yeah. well, I've had this. I mean, I have 35 tomato plants, and I like to walk down the row and see. You just do like a rough, how many fruits? And you do gloat. You how many? Gloat. Well, no, I'm, there's, I have I have two vines that have zero fruit on them, and I'm making note of this. I mean, it's interesting to know, and I need to keep monitoring this, particularly with the heirloom types, but also the modern hybrids. Uh, are some of them more sensitive to heat? Certainly, we know they are. Whether that's your issue, I don't think so. Not with the chef's series. So. The chef's uh, the other things that can cause tomatoes to fail to set fruit. Um, typically, a high nitrogen, which you know you use a very rich soil if it's growing vigorously. Sometimes they grow at the expense of blossom. At least that's what we're told. Sometimes you see them shedding blossoms early in the season. Uh, that's the main main other factor. Or of course, for those of you who don't have perfect sunlight, too much shade can be an issue. So those are all factors. It doesn't mean you're not gonna get any more fruit. We still have plenty of time. You could still get fruit setting all the way into August. And by the way, that moon, monsoon effect we were talking about, one of the reasons I mentioned it, it's common here in August. And it does mitigate the temperatures, although it does feel a little humid by our standards, it does mitigate the upper temperature range. And oftentimes we have what one meteorologist locally likes to call the August cool down, which is only a cool down by our standards. It's a relative thing, okay? But it means the days are in the upper 80s to low 90s, and we very commonly get excellent set of tomatoes and other summer vegetables in the middle of August. There's lots of places in the country where that would just frankly be too late. But here, if it sets in the middle of August, it will be ripening in the middle of October. And I've never seen the middle of October uh, too rainy, too cold, too whatever for a tomato to continue ripening. Late October, we start getting towards that, but we do have eight to nine weeks of good ripening weather, even for flowers that are on your plant in the middle of August. So if your report card at the end of the season is just one fruit, that'll be certainly something for us to talk about. I do monitor varieties. Most of mine, heirloom and hybrid, are setting very well. There's two, and I don't remember what they are off the top of my head, that have zero fruit. There's one that grew to the top of the cage faster than anything else. It's this deep green monster plant. It's six feet tall. It's got branches hanging out. The tag is down in there somewhere. I know it's tagged, but I can't get at it, so I don't know which variety it is. It is finally beginning to set fruit this week. I was beginning to wonder if this was going to be one that skunked me. You know, every, every now and then I'll have a variety that just grows the whole season, produces nothing. Uh, that's been my experience in general with Brandywine. So that's one of the reasons we don't sell that one. Uh, this was a new one to me. And I was beginning to think best growing tomato plant, least fruit. Hmm. Maybe I won't be recommending this variety. <laughs> we'll see. We'll certainly talk about which ones did well and did not do well as we get towards the end of the season. What would you is be hard? Yes, is it too late? Is it too late for me to plant another tomato plant in there? No, uh, and people are coming in, you know, our, our nursery, we make a point of having a handful of plants around on into August because we know that there, we have people who come in now, you know, ready to start their vegetable garden. They just kind of finally got around to it. At this point, we would sell them Sun Gold, Juliet, uh, Roma, you know, that kind of one that's something that you know sets very reliably and very early, early girl if you could find it. But especially those small fruited ones in our climate, 
a nice young plant would get going vigorously and you'd still be able to get cherry tomatoes and, and others. Of course, you can also, as I had a conversation with someone yesterday, you can just pivot from summer vegetables. Well, it's July, we can start thinking fall vegetables. So it depends on what your, how much space you have and what your priorities are. You can still plant basil, you can still plant uh, pepper plants will still produce. You can plant green beans to harvest in several weeks. You could plant a squash plant or a cucumber plant if you can find them, right? At this point, most of the places for whom garden plants are a secondary thing, like hardware chains, have either cleared them all out or they look as though they should have cleared them all out at this point. Garden centers continue to bring in healthy young plants as long as we can get them from our growers. But, you know, everybody's making that transition now, and it is time. Someone asked me, isn't it time to start thinking about our brassicas? But yes, it is time to plant your Brussels sprout seed and start thinking about Romanesco broccoli. So you can either try and stick something in that's going to give you some summer vegetables. We still have quite a number of weeks in our summer here. Or you can just pivot and start thinking in terms of the brassicas and the other things that we start planting now and go on into the fall. It's a transitional time. If I wanted, if I wanted to, if I wanted to take this lovely tall plant that's eight feet tall and and uh, climb some beans up it. Yeah. It, it's it. not making fruit anyway. Why not use it for a structure? Well, it probably I, will. Do I just plant bean seeds at the base or do I need to actually yeah. go find some plants? Uh, you won't find plants at this point anyway. Yeah, no, plant some bean seeds at the base. Let them climb up there. Uh, the worst that'll happen is you'll have a great big tangle of beans and tomatoes in about October, probably harvesting both. <laughs> it's certainly worth a try. <laughs> it won't, I'm not worried about the beans overtaking the tomato. Let's put it that way. Uh, okay. That, well, that was my question. Would yeah. the beans overtake the tomatoes? No. No, don't worry okay. about it. Yeah, sounds like fun. You'll have, if anything, you'll make great wildlife habitat. Maybe it'll keep the squirrels away. Who knows? <laughs> so what, uh, what's, what do you want to talk about today as far as, we always do a public service announcement. Well, KDRT is community radio. And that, it means, is. that means public radio. Public yep. radio means... We exist on contributions from listeners like you and me fund our operating costs. So if you like the Davis Garden Show or all the other great programming at KDRT, you can just go over to kdrt.org. That's kdrt.org and click on the support button. Also, while you're there, you'll find all kinds of great programming. Uh, Lois, mention a show. Namele o Hawaii comes on right after this show when we broadcast. Okay, that's the Hawaiian music. And we don't mean, you know, Don Ho singing in a cocktail lounge. We mean real Hawaiian music. We're talking about the originators of the genre, the old uh, well-known artists as well as modern ones. Beth Post has been doing Namele o Hawaii on KDRT now for several years. She features the unique sounds of Hawaiian music from the early icons, as she puts it, to today's innovators exploring the styles the history of the genre, and the revered songs and performers. It is live Thursdays from 1 to 3 p.m. Replays Saturday morning, 10 a.m. to noon. And for the broadcast time for Nameli o Hawaii and the rebroadcast schedule, you can always just head over to kdrt.org and click on the schedule guide. And while you're there, you could always click on the support tab, too. What the heck? There you go. All kinds of information there. You got, there's a, Every show has an archive. Music shows only archive for two weeks. Public Affairs Show, that's what we are, archived forever. And you'll find, if you're not real familiar with this, at every page, something that says RSS Podcast. If you click on that, show will automatically download into your computer as new, new programs are uploaded. 
Okay, what did I send you? Come up with something. So I am going to go back to something that we actually answered one time, but the show was longer than it could possibly be to be broadcast. So Dan, Don, cut it out. Ended up Didn't on the cutting room floor. Have to do it again. Cutting room. So this, yeah. <laughs> I want to do this one first because it's the oldest of our of our emails. By the way, if you all want to send in questions to us or comments or suggestions or pictures or whatever, it's a Davis Garden Show at gmail.com is the place to send it. So this is from Arash. And it says, hello, Don and Lois. When you see the photo of the tiny tomato plant that is attached, you may say to yourself, tiny seedling. He must have just planted it. Leaves look green and healthy, etc." What if I told you this seedling was planted a little over a month ago? There's another seedling that I planted about four feet away, and that one is eight inches and has some flowers on it. Now, these are, are tomato plants, what we're talking about. Last year, we brought bought several beautiful tomato plants, probably eight or so, and planted them in various spots in our backyard. All of them did wonderfully with a bountiful amount of tomatoes, except for the three that we had planted in the same general area as these two seedlings are this year. From uh, those three from last year remained stunted, grew to about two feet tall, and just did not thrive like the others did. My current thinking is that there's something different in that part of the yard. As an additional background, two years ago, I had three inches of compost tilled into the top six inches of the backyard soil before we started planting trees, etc. I've been applying sulfur seasonally to get the pH down a bit, and I keep on top of those tomatoes to ensure that they get regularly watered. Any thoughts on what can be going on here? As always, love your show and look forward to it every Thursday. And he sent a lovely picture of nice uh, little tomato plant yeah and and he was very <laughs> careful to make sure that his hand was there right next to it so you could see that the tomato plant is less than as tall as his finger has i mean it's grown. tiny yeah it has not grown and this happens occasionally now more commonly what i get is the picture where the plant is slowly dying and uh, the problem is there's, there are many possible answers to that and also to why it isn't growing so well but the fact that it also didn't do well earlier in the previous uh, previous planting in the same spot is a concern. Um, if you go online, unfortunately, you're going to tend to be steered towards what I would call tomato-specific problems, verticillium wilt, fusarium wilt, nematodes, things like that. The pictures of the symptoms of those, uh, there's a lot of overlap in those pictures, let's put it that way. They're pretty hard to tell apart. Sometimes, if this just happens once, and this happens occasionally, sometimes a plant is so root-bound when you plant it that it simply fails, struggles to get its roots out. It's harder to give it the watering that it needs while you're giving the same amount of water to nearby plants whose roots are actually growing. This amounts to, to discern whether this is the problem, you have to pull it up, which, you know, that's going to be the end of that plant pretty typically. <laughs> yes, I suppose you could replant it, but you're starting over at that point. That does happen. Sometimes tomato plants are very root bound. One of the things I always do when I put them in the ground is I tear those roots apart. I mean, I, the roots that are circling across the bottom, I take the, the four inch pot or whatever it is I'm planting out, I grasp the bottom half inch of root mat and tug on it. If it pulls out and stretches out, fine. I leave it intact. If it just breaks off, also fine. I'm not real concerned about that. If I leave it completely intact, like the shape of the pot it was in, that plant just sits there, it struggles. And four weeks later, it may not be doing anything. It doesn't always happen because typically, tomatoes are vigorous vine-like plants that their roots grow very rapidly, but sometimes they're so root bound that you simply get a plant that struggles to establish. This is one of the reasons we give you all these 
checklist of things to do at planting your, your tomato plant, one of them is to spread the roots out at least a bit and don't hesitate to get a little rough on them. I did have but, one. But, that, but Don, that's, that's not going to account for the same plant Correct. in the same place. Correct. I mean, that's, that's the first possibility, but this doesn't sound right. No, and it would have to be the same thing happening two years in a row. Seems unlikely, right? Um, the I did have one tomato plant out of the 30 or whatever number it is that I planted that just did nothing from the start. And after a few weeks with some extreme heat, it was it was trying to grow, but it was struggling. And I just thought, well, I better pull this up and see what's going on because you know my, my customers will want to know if we're having a problem with a particular variety. And as I pulled it up, I noticed that area kind of uniquely on this whole long drip line had standing water in it. Mm -hmm. right? so I had, I had min managed to create, not just me, but tractors and things going back and forth in that area. It compacted the soil very heavily in that spot. And the normal watering that was fine with all the other nearby tomato plants was gathering and standing around the roots of this one and then draining out rather slowly. I don't know how quickly it was draining out because I didn't do a classic drainage test of digging a hole, filling it with water and seeing what happened in 24 hours. But it did appear that every time I irrigated, there was a saturated zone all around the roots of this one plant. It had, and I looked closely at the stem, that little soft tissue on the stem right where it's at the interface with the soil, which indicated the presence of one of the water molds, typically Phytophthora. Phytophthora is the most common water mold or uh, oomycetes organism that damages woody plants. We talk about it all the time for your native plants and your lavenders and things like that. Well, tomatoes are also a host for Phytophthora as are peppers and many of your other summer vegetables. Phytophthora attacks hundreds of species of plants, including tomatoes. So it's quite possible that the disease was present on the plant, that happens, or the disease was present in the soil, that particular one is pretty much everywhere. It's considered to be the world's most invasive organism. And uh, that plant failed because looking at the environmental factor, it was a drainage issue. So that's a possible thing to explore without seeing the site is to dig down and see if this happens to be an area where uh, there's a poor drainage problem. A similar picture from someone who had a raised bed with one plant looking stressed compared to all the others in the bed, but growing okay. So it was a little bit different situation. So the first thing I would rule out is an irrigation problem. You think you're watering the same. He said that literally, they're all getting the same water. I said, but you better make sure they are because we're using drip systems. Drip systems are point emitters. They're right at that spot emitting. If that one emitter is plugged or two of them are plugged, which very commonly happens with our water quality in this area, that what plant is only getting half the water of the nearby plant or even less possibly, depending on how badly the emitter is plugged. That could have been happening in the same spot for two or three years running. He says that he is very careful about the watering, and I happen to know that he does hand watering in many instances. So I can rule that out in this case, but that's something others of you should be aware of, that what looks like a disease or a pest problem may just be a water distribution issue. And on, with drip systems and raised planters especially, that's a very common problem. So that's one that the rest of you can rule out, and I think the gentleman who sent me that picture figured out that, yeah, he had a problem in that corner of the bed. And it's a really simple diagnostic. Just go water the plant with a hose and water all around the plant with that hose. Give it several gallons of water all at once. It's going to respond immediately to that if that's the problem. Third possibility, or fourth, what are we up to now? <laughs> the, incorpor the incorporation of the compost. Uh, we don't recommend that in general, first of all. 
for a lot of reasons. It damages soil structure. People often like to do it at the beginning of the season, the first time they plant a garden. Okay, fine. You want to get some organic stuff in there to make the soil more workable so you can plant seeds directly so water penetrates rather than running off. You can do that the first time you plant, but from that point on, we don't recommend tilling in, as he did here, three inches of compost tilled into the top six inches because if you plant a plant that makes it a, half and half yeah half and half compost and compost is a variable thing real compost wouldn't be an issue but a lot of stuff sold as compost is what i like to call proto compost <laughs> compost it's the you stuff mean it's going to compost in place and use yeah. up the nitrogen that your plants would want <laughs> it is it is going to be compost someday <laughs> but it isn't yet it's usually just I won't say sawdust, but sometimes it is, honestly. And so that takes a while. And a couple of years wouldn't surprise me if you've got roughly 50% of your root zone uh, incorporated material that may not have been fully composted, even though it was being sold as compost, that would be tying up nitrogen. That's a pretty thing, simple thing to fix with just any soluble form of nitrogen applied directly to that particular plant. Fish emulsion is great. Any soluble fertilizer you happen to like to use or if you have the dry materials, a tablespoon or two of a tomato, vegetable, food, whatever. It doesn't make that much difference. Mainly it's nitrogen that's being tied up by the compost as it's breaking down. Be sure to water it in if you use a dry product and be sure to water a little extra because the drip system, problem with them is their water is over there and the fertilizer is on the soil here and it just doesn't dissolve it into the soil. So you have to do a little hand incorporation. That'll be a slower diagnostic because it takes about two to four weeks for the the fertilizer to be taken up by the plant and show results in the form of new growth. But that would be a simple answer. That area has a little bit of nitrogen draft, as we call it, going on because of the incorporation of the compost. Why didn't the other plants suffer? They got their roots down faster. So that gets us back to a plant that was struggling to get its roots established. So those are all possibilities. And um, the Phytophthora, well, you just throw that plant out. Good news, you can stick a new plant in because it may or may not attack the new plant. And it's not likely to, actually. The ones we haven't gotten to are verticillium wilt, fusarium wilt, nematodes. Those are more challenging, much more challenging if you have a problem with those. And so for those, you pull the plant out. In the case of the nematodes, you inspect the roots and there will be visible nodules on them, not just the bacterial nodules that are associated with most plants, but I mean things that make the roots look extremely deformed, in which case, you know, you have a root knot nematode appropriately named. For the other two, you slice diagonally through the stem. Now, you know you're not replanting that plant, okay, at this point, and you look at the cambium of the stem, which is the vascular tissue, the phloem, the xylem, and typically, there will be a staining in that ring of the living tissue on the, on the stem. There'll be brown staining where, they're, where the disease has invaded. In those cases, you have a long-term management issue. So if it's nematodes, verticillium, or fusarium, we have a separate, rather longer conversation. But my guess is I look first at an irrigation issue or the nitrogen issue because of the compost. And this is one of the reasons we don't typically incorporate bulk compost materials in the vegetable garden, we put them on the surface. We get everything ready, we plant, and then you take a nice ring of that stuff and put it on the ground around the plant, no problem. But when it's in the root zone, it can be a problem. So his diagnostic, if I understand correctly what you've been saying, is to go to where that little, little tomato plant is. And by the way, it's been enough weeks, I'm sure he's already dealt yeah. with this. But uh, to go there and right next to the plant, not on it, but next to it, scrape away that surface bark because his whole bed is covered in bark. Scrape that away, get down to the soil area, see if there's standing water, mm -hmm. 
Um, that out. Yeah. And then, and then um, dig down and find out how far down you have as much compost as soil. Yeah. And if it's more than an inch or two, uh, maybe there, the tomato plant is planted in a place where that was really deep. Yeah, um, that's, that's and, very likely, yes. yes. And then if you, if you get down to soil, then see if maybe the plant's just dying. Yeah, from Phytophthora. Pull, pull it out and see if there's a problem with the roots or the, the slimy stem or, or whatever. Yep. And then plant a different plant there. But, you know, if you find that you do have your compost four or five inches deep there instead of three or four, yeah, yeah scrape that stuff away and get that little new tomato plant right down in the soil. Yeah, spread the compost out if you possibly can. Good news is this does mitigate itself. I mean, the, the compost, if that's the issue, if it's a non-composted cellulose product, will break down at its own pace. A couple of years is not uncommon. It shouldn't take much longer than that. So if that's the problem, this will just gradually mitigate itself. And a cover crop in the winter will make a big difference. Uh, just plant some clover or something on there to help get nitrogen in there, help break down that coarser material. You gotta be cautious about the use of soil additives, and this is one of the reasons we're concerned about incorporating compost, but it's always fine to put it on the surface. And you put it on the ground, you water it down to settle it and reduce the dust. As soon as that moist compost is interfaces with the native soil, mycorrhizae move right up into it immediately. Earthworms move up into it. And the process of incorporating it at the pace which is appropriate to your soil, bacterial levels, earthworm populations, and plant needs will occur on its own, as opposed to turning it in and hoping for the best which is a very common issue. I've had a lot of conversations with people who brought in soil or soil compost mixes or compost and run into these problems. The good news is with one to two years, they tend to solve themselves. But we do want to get back and rule out that watering issue and any drainage issue and also Phytophthora. Phytophthora is a big problem and it's funny that we don't think about it with our summer vegetables. We talk to people all the time I always mention to our staff that right after a heat wave, because that sets up the conditions for Phytophthora for many woody plants, within five to seven days after a heat wave, I can just guarantee the people are going to be coming in saying, I planted 12 lavender plants and nine of them look great and two of them look like this and one of them is dead. We're watering them all the same. Well, you, technically, you probably aren't watering them all exactly the same, although you're using the same system and distribution and timing. Your soil differs a little bit, but that's the way Phytophthora works. If you have the conditions for it, It'll attack one plant and not another. And usually I could, could get down there and show you how that one was planted deeper. And therefore you had moisture around the stem of your lavender or your rosemary plant. These do attack summer vegetables. I happened to look it up for another reason about the host range of Phytophthora. It includes all of our summer vegetables. They are potential hosts for Phytophthora. Phytophthora cinnamomai, for those of you out there who are curious which of the many species of Phytophthora I'm talking about attacks a lot of woody plants, attacks a lot of our native plants and South African and Australian species, the very species we're using more because people want low water landscapes, um, they tend to be vulnerable. Well, they do also happen to attack our summer vegetables. They don't attack our winter vegetables because Phytophthoras are not active when the soil is cold. So you can have saturated conditions in December and your broccoli will be thrilled. Now let's say you don't want anaerobic conditions, but you can have constant soil moisture and they won't be affected at all. And a tomato plant in moist soil and hot conditions may, may get attacked by Phytophthora. Remember that we're always telling you to plant tomatoes deep. 
Well, this is one slight drawback to that, is that if there is a Phytophthora issue, that stem that's buried is a vulnerable uh, point of entry. It's, it's rare, so I don't want people to all change your planting patterns because of this one thing, but it happened to one of mine. And it happened to one of mine because I didn't check the drainage in the spot when I put the thing in the ground. So even the best of us have these problems. Next question. So we've been, we've been talking about the roots of that little tiny tomato plant. Let's uh, move on to talking more about roots. Now you sent me a, a whole page full of stuff. It says, once again, we need to talk about roots. Yes. And uh, let's, let's go over some of the things to remember about roots. And I will remind listeners that we have done an ex a couple of extensive shows on roots. If you go and look at our archives, if you go to davidsgardenshow.com, you'll find all of our garden shows for the last 12 years. I think we missed a couple in the beginning. Seven, but seven you, years. if you search for roots, you'll, you'll find it. But anyway, to review or for new folks. Yeah, this is... Roots this is are in the top foot of the soil, generally. So you can't see them. You don't know, you know, I would love to have an x-ray uh, system that could show people what the root system of a tree is. And this is where this comes up with trees in particular. We're in a drought. We're in a profound drought once again. And the city has requested that people cut their water use back. At the present time, I think they're asking for 15% reduction in Davis. Our water supply here is pretty resilient, folks. But, you know, it's a statewide drought and Davis residents are being asked to conserve. So many of them have done the simplest avenue, which is stop watering the lawn, uh, which works. Uh, definitely will cut your water use by at least 15% if you have any lawn of any size. If you stop watering it, it's going to turn brown and probably look pretty rough, but that will cut your water use considerably. The drawback, uh, we've mentioned this so many times, but it keeps coming up, is that there are trees nearby that we're counting on that lawn watering. Uh, you know, when I talked to a city engineer back during the last drought in the early part of this century, uh, beginning of this decade, last decade, I guess it was, the five, six year drought, he told me that the city residents cut their water use by 3 million gallons a day, from, from 13 million gallons a day, city of Davis, to 10 million gallons a day. My first thought was, that's 3 million gallons a day that trees aren't getting. Mm -hmm. They don't need all of it, but they were getting some of it. And part of it is that people don't understand that the roots of trees go well past their drip line. So these are the two things we want you to understand. How do we know this? Well, there are root excavation studies uh, where they've actually gone in and excavated the root system of a tree as if it were an archaeological dig. You can find them in Robert Couric's great book called Understanding Roots, fantastic illustrations of this. And what we know from that, those studies and observation of people working in the field is that root systems are variable. They do go where they can go where there's moisture. You know, they can't grow into dry soil. They do grow where there's a moisture uh, supply nearby and species differ with respect to how far out they go and how readily they can tap into sources of water that you may or may not be aware of. But the majority of roots in most soil types are in the top foot of soil. I mean, we're talking 85% or more of the roots. Some roots go deeper and those can be really important to a tree during a drought, tapping into moisture that might have been stored during winter rains but most don't, and most, they grow well past what's called the drip line of the tree. And the drip line is a term we've come up with many years ago for where the tree water would, where the water would fall on the ground after falling on the leaves of the tree. So the whole canopy of the tree is dripping. That's the drip line. That's basically the circle of area that the tree covers. Well, they go well past that, very far past that. And taprooted trees, pines, oaks, which we know do, we know do make taproots 
with their little seeds as starter plants out in the wild, they're a myth basically in your landscape. So whenever you see a tree illustration, stylized drawing of a tree where the branch structure is like this and the root structure is a mirror image of that, that doesn't happen, <laughs> okay? That almost never happens. What happens is more like a very long flat zone of roots supporting the tree. And so you're watering across your yard, maybe watering one species of tree. I know you have a water system under the tree that is watering the tree, but it was also tapping into water from other sources. So again, you can shut off the water to your lawn, but it probably wouldn't be a bad idea once a month, every six weeks, to run that lawn system or something like it for the trees and the larger woody plants in your landscape. They're gleaning water from nearby sources that you're probably unaware of, or at least you're unaware of them until you stop watering the lawn, the garden bed, the vegetable garden or whatever, and you're taking away anywhere from 30 to 50% of the total water that was being applied to that tree. Tree's water use is directly proportional to its canopy, which determines the evapotranspiration rate adjusted for the species, which is the landscape coefficient. And so it reflects the temperature at the time of year, it reflects the wind, those are part of the ET rate. Species differ, an olive tree uses less water than a Japanese maple, even if they're the same size. So that's the landscape coefficient. So there's technical stuff that we've gotten into before that you can get into. The key takeaway from this is, you're watering your trees when you water your garden. And if you stop watering your garden, stop watering your lawn, please continue watering the trees. They don't need as much, they're sort of bare minimum levels, but they need you to consider them and water them directly in at least the drip line. Past the drip line is even better. I highly recommend if you're replacing your lawn with something else, that you go to the master, go to the cooperative extension site for Yellow County and look for the very elegant irrigation design system designed by Lauren, L-O-R-E-N, Oki, O-K-I, that is up there, shows you exactly how to install it, which consists of three rings of drip, one fairly near the trunk, one more or less on the drip line, and one past the drip line. And you run those rings of drip uh, for a certain amount of time based on your soil to get to a one and a half or two foot depth of watering a couple times or a few times during the summer, depending on the species of the tree. It's simple something anybody can put together. This is not something that's going to be on your permanent system and require a permit. You're gonna take it apart at the end of the season, hang it in the garage, but it's a way to deep water that tree. If there's grass there, by the way, you'll end up with three rings of green grass, okay? And a whole lot of dead grass. That's okay, your neighbors will know you're doing your part to keep the trees alive. If that bothers you, mulch the heck out of it, okay? Just bring in a bunch of arborist wood chips, put mulch everywhere. But we want you deep watering the tree Every so often, yes, you can send me notes about what my recommendation would be for a coast redwood versus an oak or something, but you're deep watering those trees a few times during the course of the summer. Well, you know, Don, I have sort of another take on this. You know, I always do. But I'm thinking if the person was doing one inch of water twice a week for their lawn, yep. okay, and, and they're doing that every week, if you were to, let's say, run the lawn sprinklers uh, one inch of water every other week, mm -hmm. um, you, would be a get, you would be getting rid of like, what, 80, 85%, 90% of the lawn watering, but you would still have enough water. Would that be enough to support the tree? Because if it would, then you could still have a slightly green lawn. Yeah. You wouldn't have to make it go dead and bare and dusty. 
Right, right. I have a, I've been taking pictures of my half acre of native California grasses that I have out on my property. I want, I have taken some great pictures of what it looks like right now. It's brown and dusty. There's a graze, there's a stubble of dead grass on top. And other than that, it basically looks like a, a bare field. Um, you don't have to have that in your front yard. There are grass species that can live with less water, but, what you, but yes, you can use your existing lawn system to water your trees. An inch of water penetrates about a foot. Okay, that rule of thumb has been around for as long as I can remember. It varies by soil type. Infiltration rate may determine whether you can put on an inch of water all at once, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is, if you can put on an inch of water, it goes down about a foot. Is that perfect? No, it's not, it's not giving the tree everything it needs, but it's keeping it alive. If you could do that every couple of weeks, that would be great. If you could go three to four weeks based on the species and give it two inches of water, you know, all at once, maybe breaking that up into cycles on the same day. So it soaks in rather than running off. Great. That is also, that's another way to go. Uh, you can use the existing system. Yes. And it'll, it'll keep a, a green stubble of grass or weeds alive where your lawn was. And if you gradually start seeding over, from higher water turf species, as we've talked about, go back to last fall and the fall before, as you look through the archived shows where we talked about lawns and turf in great detail, about the fact that there are many turf species that can live with 30% or even 50% less water than a conventional lawn and still look good, look adequate. In some cases, they look very good. Uh, then you can have what looks like a lawn or a bunch of native grasses or whatever you prefer underneath the trees getting enough water to eek by. The main thing is you're considering the trees and the distribution of the roots as you do this. And the water system that was just for the trees, we can guess it probably watered 20, 30, 50% of the root zone of the tree. Well, the things I'm describing don't water 100% either. But if you and your neighbors are all cutting back on your watering, it can really stress and affect the trees. Now there are certain species of trees we know we should probably get away from. Uh, Coast redwood is a good example, very popular here in the valley, but cannot go three, four weeks between waterings on a consistent basis and do well here in the Sacramento Valley. It needs more water. It comes from an area where water would collect on the needles and drip to the roots every single morning. It's not really an easy thing for you to provide here in the valley, but you can, you can keep redwoods happy. You can get them through the drought. No, we're not telling you to go out and plant a whole bunch of new coast redwoods, but you know, let's not give up on the ones that are here. So that would be a species where you might need to do this a little more often. You still aren't gonna be using anywhere near as much water as your lawn was on a weekly basis. So yesterday on my show, for my show, I did an interview with Mary Sheet, who is a local um, native plant expert, bird expert, uh, works for, she's out, anyway, she does all these sort of things. And we were talking about plants that are appropriate to a particular location. And she said that on her yard, her property, which is out in the Yolo County, she has a farm, she has some redwood trees mm -hmm. and they always looked a little, you know, sad. Yeah. Um, but one time she started, she took hose as with as much pressure as she could get on it, on, a, on just a no, her normal hose nozzle and sprayed it up into yeah. the tree, up, <laughs> up, up the trunk and, and you know, hit the, the branches when she could and knocked off the, the dust and the detritus and whatever and sprayed it up there, sprayed, you know, got some on the trunk and then of course, when she was done, it was dripping all over the place and it, the water landed on the ground, soaked in. And so the tree not only got watered for its roots, but it got watered for its, its upper portion. 
And she said, boy, that tree looked so happy. Yeah. And so now in the summertime, uh, she regularly goes out with a hose and just does that, you know, upper body hosing off. <laughs> I've, been, I've been involved in consultations recently in which people are asking me about uh, species that will help mitigate uh, particulate matter from freeways and reduce pollution. And we do steer towards mm -hmm. conifers uh, in a big way because they have uh, the, the leaf, their needle structure, the, the uh, canopy of the tree is such that air goes through it rather than over it, which makes it a, an effective filter. The slightly resinous nature of most conifers means that particulate matter, the fine particulate matter from cars and, and railroad trains and things like that are caught by those needles. Well, they are caught by those needles and the dust is caught by those needles and spider mites get on there. One of the reasons you don't see that many conifers here in the Sacramento Valley or places like interior Southern California compared to rainier climates one, there aren't that many species that like to live on 20 inches of rain or less a year. There are very few that are tolerant of that. Most conifers are places worth 40 inches or more a year. And the other part is that in the summer, they can look kind of drab and dusty. It goes for junipers in the landscape, Italian cypresses, you know, you name it. Even the ones that are drought tolerant that we can recommend and grow here uh, very commonly look kind of rough by August. And last year, you know, 2020, when there was so much fire and soot and ash, they looked terrible. You know that it can't be good for a plant to be having that stuff all over its needles. The good part for us is that those needles are filtering it out of the air and helping to protect us. Where the coast redwood grows naturally, every morning it collects fog. Every morning that fog drips a quarter to a half inch of water down at the base of the tree. That's all that tree needs to live on because it happens every morning. So if she's going to go out and do that every day, that could, that could replace irrigation if she was capable of doing that. Um, I'm looking it's a lot of- It's not an everyday thing, no, but it's, no, it's a fun. I've often it's joked, I've joked, with, I've joked with people about how they should run fog systems up their redwoods to just <laughs> you know, fog out and drip down rather than spraying water at the ground level. They would certainly look better. Uh, unfortunately, the coast redwood is, uh, I won't say unfortunately, but it was widely planted in the Sacramento Valley, heavily planted in Davis over the last 80 years. There's a lot of beautiful old specimens of redwoods around. Heavy plantings went on in the 70s and 80s when a lot of the Peripheral subdivisions were built in Davis, so you'll see neighborhoods like yours, neighborhoods like Far West Davis, where the whole, you know, if you look at the skyline, there's a surprising number of conifers, and most of them are coast redwoods. Many of them are deodar cedars, which are much more drought tolerant, and some are atlas cedars, which are very drought tolerant. So that gets us to what are alternatives to the coast redwood that give that same level of filtering particulate matter, making our air healthier, and not as demanding of moisture, and that would include the incense cedar, which is another California native. Coast Redwood's a California native, ain't native here. <laughs> now the incense cedar is also not native here in the valley floor, but it's native in the interior. So it's something that does live naturally in areas that are much lower humidity and have the summer dry, no rainfall, no fog kind of irrigation cycle, hydrologic cycle uh, that we have, you know, that's, that's appropriate to them. And that also goes for the non-native things like deodara cedar, cedrus deodara, atlas cedar, which are big rugged looking trees, certain pines. Pines aren't great backyard trees in a lot of ways, but there are pines that are reasonably drought tolerant. And more to the point for those of you with smaller yards, there are junipers in particular that have a very strongly upright growth habit. Some of them are as narrow as Italian cypresses, those real columnar things. Others have very much a gumdrop shape. Some are very pyramidal, uh, at least for their first 10, 15, 20 years, like shaped just like a Christmas tree. And many of these fit in small yards, as opposed to the coast redwood, which is a 60 to 80 foot tree in our area. 
massive tree ultimately, or some of the pines, which ultimately get very, very big. So if you've got a yard, let's say six coast redwoods. Like my yard. And you want to keep them healthy, you're going to need to water them especially. They're going to need to have their own irrigation. It doesn't have to be uh, extensive, but they're going to need their own keep them alive type of irrigation. You may want to do, once you get 30 to 50 years in, let's say you're buying a house and it has a bunch of redwoods in it, there's not typically room for more than one or two in an actual residential subdivision lot in Davis, but I see them very plant commonly planted. It's a trend, it's a style. Three here, five there, you know, five or six in a yard. You might want to start doing some removal and an arborist can tell you which ones are clearly being outcompeted by which other ones. So there might be some tree removal involved. But the main thing is that is a species that does need steady irrigation through the summer. And the pictures people are sending me, just like with the drought in the early part of the last decade, trees are dying. Coast redwood trees are dying from lack of water. And it wouldn't take that much water to keep them from dying. Well, you make a decision about the longer term plan for the tree canopy that's not just your yard, but your neighborhood. I mean, you're in a, your redwood is an important part of your neighborhood's tree canopy. And it's providing probably nesting sites would be my guess. A lot of habitat going on up there. So don't rush to take them all out, water them more carefully. And then in the long run, look at incense cedar or non-native cedars or things like that, or in smaller yards, some of the things like thuyas or junipers, it would be more appropriate to the landscape. My yard is an interesting uh, example. Um, it, the house was built in about 1982. Mm -hmm. As I say, it's not that big a lot. It's, it's a normal standard residential lot, yeah. but there are three coast redwoods in one corner yeah. and one on the side yard and two on the other side yard with, uh, along with my neighbors. My neighbor had a redwood also, which they took out about five years ago. So, yeah. but, and then someone had planted a, a living Christmas tree and they put it out in the yard. Yeah. Pinus halopensis. Yeah. We're talking something that's huge. Yeah, I have I have an Aleppo so pine. What I, did, what I did with our yard is I simply removed all the lawn. There is no lawn here. Mm -hmm. I have trees. I have bushes. I have some little meadowy places that have flowers and stuff like that. But there is no lawn. So I don't have to worry about watering for the lawn. And if I water for the redwood trees, everything else is is happy. Yeah. So I'm, my yard is just, I, 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 I focused on what it was that was here, and then I arranged the watering to match that. And then everything else that I plant just has to accommodate. Well, that's a lot of trees for a small yard, and this is what was done widely. I mean, I've got, I would get requests for three or five coast redwoods, which are typically being planted where you have room for one tree. I mean, that's just the way it's done. We do the same thing with birch trees. It's just a look more than anything. I mean, I got an order for 12 one time. I thought, oh, this must be a rural property. You know, we did the delivery and the guy came back, my staff person came back and said, that was half of a duplex and he wants 12 more. So, okay, that's a lot of redwood trees for a normal yard, much less half a duplex, uh, uh, but he wanted quick screening. Okay, so this is the key. People want fast screening. And if you go to sites online like fastgrowingtrees.com, you're likely to come up with a bunch of types of thuyas and other evergreens because they're very popular. This isn't the place for those. This isn't the climate for those. Those tend to be high water plants and in our area, they tend to have some problems. So I would look at other types of ways to get that privacy screening that you're after. If you aren't in such a hurry 
you can look at things like bay laurel or any of a number of shrubs like xylosma that will give you the privacy you're after. They'll just take longer to do it. And in the long run, it, we won't be creating a problem for someone else down the road. But yeah, keep those redwoods watered. And if you're designing a landscape and you like that redwood forest look, I think incense cedars are beautiful trees and they can be unirrigated once established. I mean, they are, they're tolerant of living without any summer irrigation. Uh, so there's the kind of the look of the redwood. Now I planted some incense cedars and some coast redwoods on my farm at the same time. They, the redwoods grew five feet a year. Uh, I was giving them normal watering. That's not uncommon for them. They grew very rapidly. The incense cedar only grew three feet a year. So 10 years down the road, I had 30 foot incense cedar and almost 50 foot coast redwoods. But in terms of visual screening of a property, if that had been my goal, either of them would have been satisfactory. The redwood would have done it basically about one year faster. So I think if you can plan a little better and plan a little more carefully, you're making fewer problems for the next resident of your house 10, 20, 30 years down the road. It's surprising how often I hear, oh, I don't, that's not my problem. Well, <laughs> I get called in when it becomes it someone else's problem. <laughs> Okay, let's do one more short one. What do we got there? Uh, uh, you'll like this one. Okay. I just check out my old tomato plants that are done. They, I've got to replant. I need some compost. I had the humus mix from the yard rock. From, let me start that over. <laughs> See if I can read it better. It's five, four, three. I just check out my old tomato plants that are done. I've got to replant. I need some compost. I had the humus mix from the rock yard. I added some miracle Grow. It wasn't enough. I'm going to start composting, but I need something for my new starts. Right, and this was about three days ago. Right? It's July 21st. So this was in the second, third week of July that someone's tomato plants were, quote, done, and he's starting over. Um, that's a concern that suggests to me that they never got watered adequately. That's the most likely. Tomato plants, my experience when I forget and leave my drip system on twice as long as I should, the plants flourish. <laughs> they immediately respond with vigorous growth. Um, the, the miracle Grow, which is just a very well-known fertilizer, was certainly probably helpful for the young plants. I plant, I give some kind of fertilizer at the time of planting, either on the surface or mixed in or whatever, and that's all my plants get. But they get at least a couple of gallons of water when I water, typically four to five gallons of water. And then I go several days between waterings on established plants. Then the conversations we're having with people about how they're watering their tomatoes, bear in mind, we told you tree roots typically only go, are mostly in the top foot or so of soil. Well, tomato roots will go deep if they possibly can. They won't do that if they haven't had adequate soil moisture to get down there. And if there's no winter rainfall for them to be tapping into deep, deep moisture, they certainly won't uh, get down there. People need to water your tomato plants and your, pep your, your pumpkins and your winter squash, which are deep-rooted plants, deeply. You can go several days between waterings, but if you aren't watering deeply, as soon as we get a heat wave or a windy spell, that plant is going to struggle and the fruit isn't going to develop well. So it's frustrating when someone is coming in in July ready to start some new plants when the tomato plant is put in the ground in April should be growing all the way into almost November here and should be flowering and fruiting all the way into then, uh, certainly through October. So my usual suspicion, 
based on the pictures and just long experience with these conversations is people aren't giving them a deep enough watering when they do. You can go surprisingly long intervals between waterings with an established tomato plant by the second or third week of July. You may be able to water once every week to 10 days if you give the plant several gallons when you do. Problem is the other things in your vegetable garden, like your peppers and your eggplant and your summer squash and your cucumbers, need more frequent watering. So I typically have my tomatoes on one line along with winter squash and pumpkins and everything else on another line. And by this time of year, the other line is running about twice a week and the deep rooted things are getting watered about once a week, but they're getting significantly more water when they do. And every now and then when I see we're gonna have an extreme heat wave and I've got this drip line running through everything, I look at temperatures, we're looking at 100 plus for two, three, four days. Before that happens, I'll turn the system on for the whole bed for three or four hours to water all of those plants and the trees nearby, remember them, don't forget the trees nearby, and give everything a really deep soaking. I can typically, when I do that, I can usually get all through the heat wave, if it's a typical Sacramento Valley three to five day heat wave, without having to do any additional watering, except maybe from some newly planted basil or peppers or something. Most of the other things with the soils we have here can hold enough water to go a few days if you give them enough water going into a hot spell like that. My guess is he was, to use the jargon, Deficit irrigating, just barely giving the plant almost enough water under normal conditions. We've got a hot spell. Water use by plants goes up 15 to 20% during one of our either heat waves or north wind episodes. And that deficit irrigation became more pronounced and the plants struggled and suffered from the lack of irrigation. First thing that'll go in that situation is the blossoms and the fruit and then the new growth. So you're affecting your yield, you're affecting your quality, and you're affecting the duration of your season by not watering deeply enough. Lawns, excuse me, vegetable gardens use on a square foot basis as much water as a lawn. But you don't have a 2,000 square foot vegetable garden. You have a 100 square foot vegetable garden. And so if you, or, or a container, that's right. So if you take out your lawn and replace 10% of it with vegetables and you give those vegetables the water that they need, you're still well ahead of the game in terms of conserving water and you're getting food for your family. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter in Davis, California. Our radio station is KDRT. You can listen to us live. We broadcast 95.7 FM, or you can listen to us streaming kdrt.org. Thanks. Thanks for listening.